0: son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. I will tell you that as I was preparing for uh, this morning that uh, you go through the process, you do the language study, you read the text in Greek, and uh, you see where the relative clauses are and what modifies what so that you have a good handle on the flow of the thought in the original text, and, and you do your historical study, your Old Testament background study, and uh, this is a passage that is very rich in all those kinds of things, and so uh, uh, the the, the direction that I was going in was a, a sort of an, an academic direction uh, where we would just look at the text and, and we would just talk about those things and, and the meaning of it, and we would uh, exposit those and sing a hymn and then go home. Uh, the problem with reading Scripture that way is that you miss so much, and so when you go back and you start to read it prayerfully, you start to hit all kinds of um, stop signs, stop and listen, stop and hear what the Spirit is saying through the Scripture. So this morning, I want for us to read the text together uh, more that way. Now, uh, let me tell you where I I plan to end up uh, if... um, all goes as planned, but if it goes according to the Spirit, we might do something else. But, um, but where we're going to wind up is that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are being uh, fashioned and worked into the spiritual building, which is God's house, and that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you're being brought into the church, if you will, that you would be the habitation of God's praise and glory in your life. So if you go to sleep or the sound goes out or the roof caves in, whatever it is, that's the sermon you can check out now. Now, let's get there together. We look at verse 4 of uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter starts out, he says, as you come to him, and folks, this is when it happened. You're just reading, as you come to him. Well, it's very clear what he's talking about. As you come to Jesus. He's going to talk to something. But as you come to Jesus and as you look at those words, in my life, I have never come to Jesus except that he came to me first. Whenever I have come to him, turned to him, been drawn to him, it has always been because he first has come to me. He first has been at work in my life. He first has prepared that moment. He first has changed the heart, changed the thinking, changed the inclination within me so that I would be drawn to him. And so I have never come to Jesus until, uh, except that he came to me first. This, This is what happened when I was saved. I was an eight-year-old boy, even then a great biblical scholar, but uh, if you can imagine, but I, I gave everything that I knew about myself to everything that I knew about Jesus Christ. All I knew was that he was the Savior and I needed to go forward, shake the preacher's hand, and be baptized. Now, I believe that God honors the faith of a child. I believe that God expects the faith of a child to grow Uh, Throughout your life, I I, I believe that God expects the faith of a child to be not just a momentary thing where you can check off that box so that when finally you're dead, gone, and they're doing your funeral, somebody can say, well, I think he was baptized back there sometime. That's the best they can do about your life of faith. But rather, the faith of a child is to grow in the grace of God. But look, I didn't come to Jesus as an 8-year-old boy because I had figured it out. I mean, it was God who designed a family into which I was born. I don't know what your testimony in in, in receiving Christ is, but mine is this. God designed a family for me into which I was born, where father and mother loved God, loved Christ, lived in the Spirit passionately, that he formed this family for me so that breathing in the air of the Spirit and breathing in the air of the Scriptures and the air of Christ, just breathing was a natural thing that the things of the Spirit would be brought into you. And as a child, of course, you don't try to figure it out, question it, do the philosophy on it and the logic on it. You simply know this is what mom and dad believe, this is what they've taught, this is what I breathe, it's what I inhale, it's what I exhale. And so that's who I am. And you that environment in which God was working for me in my life before I was even conscious of him, I came into a home where I was nurtured in the things of God. See, when I came to Christ finally at eight years of age, it was because God in Christ had come to me first, and he was working first of all in my life. And here's the, the testimony I think of every believer It'll have variations in the details, but the testimony is essentially this: in those times, then when I became careless towards Christ, when I knew He was there, and I knew I was saved, and I knew that uh, um, that that uh, um, the, the Scripture was true, believe God, believe Jesus, all those things. But you know, there was something interesting over here, and I knew Jesus was there, but there was something over here. And after all, it was okay because He'd be there when I got back. And so you just go over there and you just visit the things that the world accepts. You just visit the things, the attitudes, and the values, and the recreation, and uh, the the sort of wisdom of the world. And you just visit those things because they sound good, and after all, all your friends are doing it, you're off to college, and, and all those kinds of things. And so you know Jesus will be there when you get back. It really doesn't matter if you're really that engaged with him, and after a week, after a month, after a year, after years, You realize it's been so long since you spent time with him that you hardly know what to do. And I found in those moments that when I turned to Jesus, he was already there. Don't you praise God that when we turn to Jesus, we don't have to work our way back to Christ. We don't have to first say, Jesus, I know I blew it, but look, give me a year, give me two years to prove myself, and then you'll know that I'm serious this time, and then maybe I can come back. You don't come back to Jesus confessing your sins, and it says he's faithful and righteous to put you on probation just in case says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what Jesus does for us. And so that, that phrase, as I'm reading it, it says, as you come to him, my thought is he came to me. And it's only the grace of God that I turn to him. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that I turn to him. So I see grace just flooding this introductory phrase to this verse. I see the grace of God just just infusing every aspect of it. The other part of it is it's not just, you know, when you start to be neglectful and you walk away from him that you find out he's been walking right behind you waiting for you to turn around. But you find in those times when the, oh, when the pain gets tough, when the heartache is so real it has a physical weight on you. The darkness of sadness and grief and sorrow begins to invade your thinking so that your heart is just filled with, with a heaviness all the time. And it's not so much that you don't want to turn to Jesus as it is you just don't have it. You're just worn out, exhausted, and tired, and depressed. My experience is this. The moment you turn just a little bit towards Jesus, he's already there. He never left you. Maybe because of what happened in life, you couldn't see him, but he could always see you. And he always knew what was going on. And in those moments when you cried out in the darkness of the night, you know, why, oh Lord? Jesus was the answer and Jesus was there all the time. So Peter starts out and he says, As you Come to him. How do you come to him? You come to him because he came to us first. Beloved, if you don't know Christ this morning, come to him. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, come to him. If Jesus has become just a concept in your thinking and that faith in Christ with which you launched out in the spiritual journey with such enthusiasm and now that faith has grown indifferent and cold, come to him. If you are in that position where life is just bearing down on you so hard and so fast and so sudden that you just can't figure out where to turn in order to turn to him, turn to him, you'll find him turning you and bringing you unto himself. Oh, this is the grace of God, that when you come to Christ, he's there because he was pulling you all along, all along. So that's where we are. That's that's where we start. That's, That's the beginning point. So Peter says in that process, in that spiritual journey, beginning with salvation, moving through the the life of of growth, the life of sanctification, if you will, but the life of of growing in knowledge and growing in commitment and growing in love and devotion for Christ, as you come to him and you continue that, that process of coming to him, as your life is defined by being focused on Christ and coming to him, here's who you find. Coming to him, who is he? He is a living stone. He is a living stone. See, the world has a lot of dead stones, a lot of dead stones. It has a dead philosophy. The world has uh, a dead philosophy of self, a a philosophy that says, well, you need to take care of yourself. You need to put yourself at the center sometimes. You even hear it put this way. You can't love others till you love yourself. Balderdash, that's a technical Greek term meaning that in point of fact, the sinful heart always puts ourselves first in one fashion or another. It's Jesus Christ who sets us free and brings us to where we ought to be in our self-understanding and those kinds of things. Christ comes first. But the world has a dead philosophy. It says, well, um, if, if you will just maybe live in the moment, uh, just decide that life has meaning, find something, invest your life in that, and, and uh, you know, do good works, whatever it is, The world has a dead philosophy because it will kill you and it will leave you empty and absolutely shattered. The world has a dead morality, a morality that says do what you like to do. And then they throw in this caveat. It sounds so wise. It really sounds wise when somebody who is a sophomore in high school says it. But I believe you can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody. Doesn't that sound great? As long as you don't hurt anybody, that's fine. How do you know who you're hurting? How do you know who you're hurting? Your attitude that becomes a part of you, that becomes an effect on somebody else's life that multiplies itself in the, in the people they know. And before long, you have this domino effect there that what you thought you were doing in private, I'm not ha- hurting anybody, becomes a cascade of harm to all the people of society, society around you. You know, as long as we love each other, it doesn't matter what we do, as long as we love each other, How do you know what love is? How do you really know what love is? How do you know you're not masking the selfish desires with this language of love? So you don't have enough wisdom for that. The world has a philosophy that basically do your own thing, and it results in death. It results in a broken life and a shattered life. The world has a dead morality, and the world has a dead religion. Has a dead religion that says you've got to work hard for God to love you, that you've got to do all kinds of things. You've got to go and, and spin the prayer wheel. You've got to ring the bells. You've got to light the candles. You've got to wave the, the, the palms. You've got to just go and be religious. Or you've got to sit still and sit in that cross-legged position that cuts off all circulation to all parts of the legs below the knee. You're not listening. <laughs> Learn the mantra. The mantra, mantra that was invented by electricians, Om. (laughs) Now, if you didn't get that, don't worry about it. But you know, if I can just, just you know, some magical incantation, some way to just zone out my mind so that I start to think of the uh, nothingness of the allness, and I'm absorbed into the allness of the nothingness, and I cease to be, and being itself transcends existence, and it's a dead religion. It'll lead you to death every time. The world has a dead philosophy, a dead morality, and a dead religion, but we have a living stone. We have a living stone in Jesus Christ. You know what the gospel is? We've talked about this before. It's just got four main parts. God sent Jesus. You killed him, God raised him, repent. That's the gospel. God sent him, you killed him, God raised him, repent. And it is that line there, God raised him from the dead, upon which it all hangs that Jesus Christ is alive. The resurrection is not some nice metaphor for new life after wintertime, springtime, after the rain, the rainbow. The resurrection is God bringing his son to life, conquering death, emptying the grave. This Jesus who died on the cross from us by the power of the Holy Spirit, declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Our Savior is a living Savior. He has ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He makes intercession for us. He is alive. We come to a living stone. this is an amazing thing. I hope you understand that. I mean, this radically transforms the whole concept of what it means to be a Christian. See, if Jesus is just a man who who happens to have uh, uh, died in a way that inspired people to think, oh, it's almost as if he's alive, um, you know, it, it, it falls apart. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior alive in your life. You're transformed. So as we come to him, he is a living stone. He is life itself. Now, he is a living stone rejected by men. The picture here is of a, of a rock quarry, if you will, and there's this, this massive stone that has, been, that, that has been taken out of the quarry, and there it is. And the, and the builders come along, and they're choosing which stones they want for the building, and they look at that stone, and they say, don't like it. It's not what I want. I don't like its shape. I don't like its color. I don't like the texture of it. I don't like the grain of it. And the builder looks at the stone and says, I'll have nothing to do with that stone. And so the, 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 the foreman of the quarry comes along, and on that stone with his piece of chalk, he writes, rejected. Don't use this. This stone is rejected by men. Jesus Christ has been rejected by men. He, he was rejected historically. He was rejected in the days of his flesh. You know, he came into the world preaching and teaching and healing, manifesting the power of the kingdom of God. The first people to re- reject him were the religious leaders, those who were in charge of the religious welfare of the community, those who ran the synagogues, ran the temple, ran the Sanhedrin, these are the ones who rejected him first of all. Jesus, you don't line up with what we thought you should be. You don't line up with what a rabbi should be. You don't line up with what a prophet should be. And you certainly don't line up with what a Messiah should be. The leaders rejected him. But even when Jesus talked to his disciples and he said, look, I've got to go to Jerusalem and there I'm going to be arrested and there I'm going to be scourged, I'm going to be Persecuted. There I am going to be crucified. But guys, the third day I'm going to be raised again. I've got to go there because the scriptures declare it and the Father tells me and leads me there. Peter took him to one side and said, Jesus, I don't think so. That's not the Messiah I I wanted. I didn't sign up for that. I sent away to the radio preacher, and for a gift of $10, he sent me the charts, and they're on my wall, and it shows when the Messiah happens and what what, what he does and what he looks like. Don't you know, Jesus, Messiah comes with an army, and he wins the battle, and he drives out the Romans, and he says the Jews are right all along? Don't you know that's the Messiah? And Jesus said, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. You're not thinking of the things of God, but the things of man. He was even rejected by his own. And when he died on the cross, save for a few brave souls at the foot of the cross, he died alone. He was rejected historically. And he has been rejected ever since. He's rejected by our society. You know, there was a time when you would talk about Jesus and at least people would say, yeah, yeah, good guy. Don't want him personally, but he's okay for you. There was a time when you, you, you talked about Jesus, the birth of Christ. You talked about Easter and the resurrection, and folks would at least say, well, yeah, at least this, this time of year we need to tell that story. But now you talk about Jesus, and what do you hear? Be quiet. Don't be offensive to me. Our society is rejecting Christ, and in rejecting Christ, it rejects the teachings of Christ And the goodness and the righteousness of Christ, our society is rejecting him. And men today still reject him. They still look at him and say, Jesus, wrong size, wrong shape. You don't fit into my life. I can't squeeze you in where I want you. Jesus, no good. Rejected. This is the Jesus we come to. This is why we are aliens in a strange land. This is why we live in a world that is not our home. This is why we are exiles on a journey to the promised land, and we're not there yet. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God. I mean, it's a pretty clear... A dichotomy here in the sight of men in the sight of God this is this is the God side of the church you folks are lost <laughs> that's okay at 830 these were the same people. but in the sight of men you, know, you can care what people think you can care what the world thinks you can base your life on the common-sense wisdom of the world Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, it seems to me I should, ought to, and am better off if I care more about what God thinks than about what man thinks. And so rejected my men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. My family has learned a lesson and precious this week. We have learned a lesson in what it means to look at a precious son and a precious grandson and daughter-in-law. We've learned a lesson in what it means to have someone so precious to you, it hurts. Jesus Christ is precious to the Father jesus christ is precious to the father the father loves the son from all eternity the father has given glory to the son from all eternity the Father has declared that this declared that this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords from all eternity. The Father has declared that this will be the sacrificial lamb. This will be our Passover. This will be the one who dies for lost humanity. He has declared that before the foundation of the world from all eternity. The Father has declared that this Son, Jesus Christ, is precious in the heavens and precious on earth, that he is precious to the Father, precious to the angels and to those of us touched by the grace of God, he is precious to us, and that's why we love him and want to be with him and want to follow him. That's why we constantly turn to him, because he is precious, and he is a chosen, chosen living stone. He is chosen by God, God's designated Savior, King, Lord, Master, and so rejected by men we come to a living stone who is precious to God that's one way to talk about what it means to be a christian what it means to be saved you know and as we're talking along here the spirit is saying why isn't jesus precious to me maybe i don't know him well enough maybe i haven't spent enough time in the word maybe i don't study his life maybe i don't i don't listen to him in prayer You're saying, why isn't Jesus so precious to me that that I would give everything for him and I am constantly drawn to him to turn to him? Why isn't that happening? Maybe, Maybe it's because you've just been neglectful, but I can tell you this, you turn to him now, you'll find him there, ready for you, absolutely ready for you. So here's where we've traveled. Turning to him who is the living stone, rejected by men, but he is chosen and he is precious in God's sight, here's what happens. You yourselves, when you turn to Christ, love him the way God loves him, you yourselves like living stones. We turn to him who is the living stone and we now like living stones. Do you have any idea what it means to have even one thing said about you that is also said about Jesus? I mean, it just blows you away. I see the love of Christ in you. Wow. I see the forgiveness and the grace of God in in you. Amazing. I see the willingness to wash feet in you. Fantastic. Fantastic. What would you give for someone to say that they see something of Jesus in you? Peter says... We come to the living stone, and then God uses us like living stones. See, this this ties into what Paul talks about in Romans 8. He says, look, this is your destiny. It is your predestiny because in Christ you have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's dear Son. That's God's plan for your life, to make you look more and more and more like Jesus Every day. And here Peter says, You come to the living stone, and God, like living stones, you yourselves, like living stones, what's happening to you? You are being built up as a spiritual house. What kind of house is this? Well, it's a little two story Georgian front with no. It's the house of God, it's the temple. Think of the temple, you think back to the tabernacle in the wilderness. There, God's people were were traveling through the wilderness, getting out of Egypt, getting to the promised land. It turned out to be quite a process. And uh, as as they're traveling, at one point, God says, Moses, I want you to create a a tabernacle for me, a tent. It's got to be portable because the people are on the move, but this is going to be the focal point for meeting with me. This this is going to be the focal point for my presence among the people. Look, everybody knows God doesn't dwell in a building made with hands and certainly not in a tent made with hands. That wasn't the point. God wasn't saying, I'm only gonna be there. He said, but you know, to to bring the people together and to focus their attention, that they would gather and assemble and worship praise and, and sacrifice and confession, all those things. Moses, I want you to have this tabernacle in their midst. Later on in the history of the children of Israel, God allowed uh, David to assemble the Uh, the materials, and then he had Solomon build the, the, the temple, which was a permanent structure there in Jerusalem. They knew good and well that God wasn't limited to a house in Jerusalem, but there it was, the emblem, the sermon about the presence of God and the glory of God present in the midst of the people, and there they would come and worship, and there they would come and sacrifice, and there they would come and be tied into this prefiguring of the grace of God in Christ in the sacrificial system. So that was the temple, that was, that was the glory of, of, of that building. It was a declaration of the glory and the presence of God in the midst of the people. And Peter says, when you come to Jesus like little living stones, you're being built up together into a spiritual house that there together, bound together, formed together, you are now the habitation of the praise of God and the worship of God. Whatever went on in the temple, it goes on in your fellowship. When God is to be glorified, you come together, you gather together, God gets the glory. To worship him and ascribe to him the the worth, that he is worthy of all praise and worthy of obedience. You get together and you ascribe worth to him and you worship together. In the sacrificial system, as you bought in, it was an act of faith to bring the, the sacrificial animal and to give it to the priest, and the priest would sacrifice it for you, that that was... That was an act of faith and tying into the promise of a Savior who would come and fulfill the meaning of the sacrifices. You'd come together and you glorify God for the sacrifice of the Lamb of Jesus Christ for your sins. You see, all the things that the temple was about is what you are about as a collection of God's little living stones together by faith in Jesus Christ. By the way, folks, that's why you need to go to church. You know, I know all the problems with church. In fact, I know more of the problems with church than you do. But we need to be together because God is building us up together for a spiritual house as the habitation of his praise and his glory. But look at, uh, yeah, we got time. Look at what else happens. He says, you are being built up to be a spiritual house also to be a holy priesthood. You're not just the temple, you're the priest too. Now, here's one of the great things about that. It's not... uh, it's not just the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. That, that's in here. Uh, that means that we don't go through the mediation of any human being, but we go through Jesus Christ. We have direct access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't need some priest or cleric standing in the way, taking our confession, pronouncing whether or not it's okay that we get into heaven or not. We, we go directly. So the priesthood of the believers also means that we each have a responsibility to share Christ, to bring the power and the love of God in Christ to the world around us, all that. But here's what I want for us to see. Right. That satisfies the priesthood of the believer Thanks, And don't anybody go out the door and say, I wish you'd said something about that. <laughs> In the Old Testament, you brought your sacrifice and the priest took it and you watched. You just watched. He took, took the, uh, the sacrifice and he prepared it, took it to the altar, disposed of it according to the law, and you watched. And if you were a Gentile, you could watch from a great distance. And if you were a woman, you could watch a little bit closer, but you had to peek through the gates. If you were an Israelite man, you could get closer still, but it was going on up the steps and in the courtyard. Ah, oh, if you were a Levite or if you were a, a priest, you could, uh, you could be in the courtyard and take part in the preparation and the supplying of the fuel and and the sacrificial system, but you would look to the doors of the temple, and they'd be closed to you. Every so often one of you, one of you would be chosen by lot, and you could go to the temple, and you could open, open the door, and you could take in the daily sacrifice into the holy place. But you would look, and there there would be a veil, a curtain, and you couldn't go any further. If you were the high priest, once a year, you would walk in, had a cord tied to your ankle. In case you died, they could haul you out. Jesus Christ died on the cross. And that veil was torn from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was opened up. I believe not only was the veil torn, the door was flo- thrown open, the gates were removed, that little barrier for the Gentiles was taken out of the way, the barrier, the wall of enmity that divided us was taken away in Jesus Christ. And now we are a holy priesthood. We belong there. We walk into the temple, and this is, this is the house where we belong. You know? Like we say, Paul, if anybody says, how, how come you're in here, you just turn and point to Jesus, says, I'm with him. We are the temple and we are the priests and we are walking in and we are worshiping, glorifying God directly, actively. We're not just watching from a distance any longer. We are worshiping personally before the throne of God. We are a holy priesthood. And then he says, offering to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, offering the obedience of our lives, offering up everything that we have, all that we are, just, just giving God the praise and the glory, constantly worshiping him. Now, here's what Peter has said. As you come to Jesus by the grace of God, as he sent Christ to us first, but as you come to Jesus, you realize he's the living stone. And because God has declared him chosen and precious in Christ now, we are living stones built up into the God's temple, built up into the house of God where we worship him directly and offer the sacrifices worthy of his name. Now, if that doesn't give you one of those little tiny hallelujah moments, and and, and we're kind of sedate, so for me it's hallelujah. Folks, this is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Let's, let's just tease out a few things that mean. First thing I think that means is, A, go to church. I know the church won't save you. In fact, in, in the United States, we're so proud of saying to one another, well, you don't have to go to church to be saved. And then we say, ha, well, I'm not going. <laughs> why, why would I bother? I can be saved and worship God on the golf course just as much as I can in church. That's true, but you won't. Most people lose their religion on the golf course, so don't. <laughs> they. But but we have this 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 attitude that you know. Well, you don't have to go to church, therefore we won't go to church. Let me tell you what it really is. You get to go to church. God says, You get to come and worship. You get to come and abide in my presence. You get to come and be united and joined with a lot of other little living stones that you might be a temple of God's praise and a habitation of his glory. So, you know, going to church, I mean, just this, this thing of gathering together and singing the songs and worshiping and reading the word and praying together, all of that has to do with God's grace given to us in Christ. See, so, go to church. I think the second thing I would tease out of that is keep coming. And um, Peter says, as you come, you know, in that process of coming, as you come, here's what happens. Again, it's the work of God's grace and it's the power of the Holy Spirit and we're sunk without, without Christ coming to us first. But, you know, the response that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts is to keep coming, keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. You know, keep walking in the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, that he'd be glorified. And I suppose the third thing I would say is don't forget to thank him. How often do we take the graces of God for granted? How how often is it that, you know, we, we look at the magnificence of what God has done for us in Christ and we yawn, we doze off, Uh, We go do something else, we get distracted. My desire for you this morning is that you would have that longing and that desire, that passion for Christ, that you would constantly turn to Him and come to Him, that you might worship and adore the Father through the Son by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Precious Father, when we read the Scriptures, we are just left without words sufficient to declare your glory and praise. We are left in a condition where we are just in slack-jawed amazement that you love us the way you do, and you show that to us. Father, how I thank you for this word of Scripture that calls us out of that kind of complacency into the joy of worship, into the joy of bringing you praise. For all of us in this room, Father, I pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit to redirect us, remake us, remold us. Father, for your glory, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.